the law. Uh, that's the title of today's message, the law. And those two words by themselves invoke different feelings in different people. There's a kind of a power in them which for some brings a sense of admiration and obligation and for others a consciousness of, of fear or even a, a sense of loathing. But for almost all, except for maybe the very most callous, there comes a realization that when we talk about the law, we're dealing with something larger than ourselves and which has some claim on us as a part of the human family, leaving us with the impression that those words, the law, ought to be capitalized when they're written and uh, voiced with respect whenever they're spoken. And this is especially true when we talk about God's law. It is entirely likely that whatever authority we sense in any other laws, uh, those made by legislatures and human governments, comes from the feeling that they are in some way a reflection of God's law, however faint that reflection might be. The law, specifically God's law, is a is a mountain which almost dominates the human landscape. And though it's not the only feature in the land, it demands our attention uh, and it affects and influences us as we make our way through life. Now this is true for the believer as well as for the non-believer, but for different ways for each. And our text today tells us about this mountain as it relates to the believer and the implications are there for the unbeliever but the focus of our text is on the relationship between the law and the believer those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and and understand salvation is by trusting in him and only by trusting in him apart from the works of of the law that's who Paul is talking to here today. Now this text also tells us uh, something else. It, It tells us about something that is lurking in the shadow of that mountain, something which intends to enslave us and to kill us if it can. And the final thing that we discover here in the text we look at today points uh, us to how we need to navigate through this land between uh, those two other things, that uh, mountain and the enemy. So I want to ask you to join me, if you would, please, once again in the book of Romans where we're going to be considering chapter 7. And, of course, the text will be up on either side of me in just a little bit. Uh, There's a lot of material here, and we're going to move through it at a pretty quick pace. And in this chapter, Paul draws a number of conclusions as he makes his case. And we're going to start with one of those conclusions where Paul tells us that the law, specifically God's law, is a good thing. And so we read in verse 12, So then... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. See, God's law is a good thing. Now, that might strike us as rather obvious, uh, but with a little thought, um, 
you can see just why Paul might uh, make such a statement. I mean, we've already noted how just those words by themselves, the law, can affect people. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is offering some reassurance here that the law is good. And we can think of it this way, of a small child who finds himself or herself in the doctor's office or hospital, and they're, they're surrounded by all sorts of strange objects, which he or she doesn't see in, um, in their own home or in grandmom's home, and, and they begin feeling a little bit afraid of them. And if we saw that fear in those child, we'd want to comfort them, wouldn't we? want to reassure them. Uh, We tell them the doctor uses those things, all of those things that you see, in order to help us. We don't need to be afraid of them. We are, in fact, telling them, aren't we, that those are all good things. And Paul's doing something like that here. He's reminding us that the law is a good thing. But this reminder is even more important when we read what Paul said before that reminder in verse 12. The things which precede this conclusion could make anyone wonder if the law really was a good thing. Verse 5 introduces us to a truth which is somewhat surprising the first time you ever hear it. We read there, For when we were in the realm of the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. And that statement, our sinful passions are aroused by the law, that's what surprises us here. And it's that statement and what follows which might make us wonder if the law really is a good thing. Then we continue reading in verse 8 where Paul adds fuel to the fire when after... um, Recalling the commandment against coveting, he says, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And then in verse 11, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. And at first blush, when you read that, it seems as though the law incites us to sin. Now, you you probably, I'm I'm sure you've heard this analogy. Uh, You put up a sign, and the sign says, wet paint don't touch. And I think that always the image that's used is a sign on a on a park bench, right? So you have this bench in the park, and there's a sign on it that says... uh, don't touch, right? And invariably, people, as they walk by and they see the sign, what do they do? They, they touch the bench to see if the paint is still wet. You know, it's as though that sign incites them to the opposite of what it recommends. The sign says, don't touch, and what do they do? They touch it. Now, now it might be great fun, put a sign like that on a park bench somewhere and to see how many people actually walk by and, and touch it, you see, right? But, you know, in the real world, you only put that sign there when you've really painted the bench. And, uh, and you put that sign there because you don't want someone coming along and sitting in the wet paint and ruining their clothes. It, it really can't be helped that they're, 
will be those who get pain on their fingers because they can't resist touching the bench. See, the law is like that. It warns us against sin. We need the warning, but but then it's as though we can't help ourselves and we reach out for it anyway. Verse 13 explains why that happens. And Paul begins by asking a question and then answering it. We read there, Did that which was good, meaning the law, become death to me? By no means, he answers. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You see, the law is good. It's sin which is evil. And, And it's so bad that it uses good things to kill us. That's what sin is. I mean, there's nothing good about it. Verse 11 told us sin deceives us, and it slays us, it kills us, it's death to us. It it, it takes something good, the law, and it uses it as a weapon against us. It's utterly corrupting. I mean, we don't have the time to look at it now, but our text tells us something. It tells us that whatever innocence we might have had, sin steals from us as soon as it gets the chance, and it uses the law to do that. Sin's not our friend. It's our enemy, and that is what's lurking in the shadow of the mountain of the law. That's part of our world our reality. We have an enemy and it's sin and it is waiting to destroy us. But it's not quite as simple as just that. It's not that the enemy is somewhere out there, somewhere lurking and waiting to catch us. I mean, we can't build some kind of a stockade to keep it out. I wish that we could. The problem is, the reality is, is that sin is in us. It's not out there somewhere. It's in us. And the paragraph that uh, follows in verses 14 through 20 really describes us. And and I want to read it to you, and then I want to make just a couple of comments on it. Listen to what Paul says. We know that the law was spiritual but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, that I do. And if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Now I have to tell you something right now, my friends. That's me talking. That's me. 
But I know something else. I know it also describes you. And that's the confession that Paul, the apostle, makes. That enemy lurking in the shadow of the mountain lives in us, each and every one of us. And when Paul says there in verse 17, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin that's living in me. He is not trying to justify his actions or excuse himself. Rather, he's admitting that he is not a whole being. He is telling us he is, to use our modern terminology, dysfunctional. Or to use a more biblical term, he is double-minded. This isn't an excuse. It is who we are. Now, I want to just read to you the conclusion that Paul draws from all that he just confessed in verses 21 and following. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. That's how Paul understood himself, and it's how we need to understand ourselves. Now, I I need to do something here. I I need to, just for a moment, uh, address some of you who have heard or maybe you have been taught that all of this that we're talking about right here and now, uh, which we've been reading, really describes our state before we come to Christ. Uh, Part of it certainly does apply to before we come to Christ. And I can understand why some people might think that. I mean, none of this is pleasant. It's not easy to admit this truth about ourselves, especially after we have confessed Christ. But the entire book of Galatians tells against that argument. And here, Paul is speaking in the present. He's telling us what he was when he wrote that letter. And he draws a very same conclusion at the end of the chapter after mentioning salvation, which is in Christ, when he says in verse 25, so then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law. That's something no one outside the faith could ever say, that they were in their mind a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. The enemy is not out there. I, I mean, we have enemies that are out there, the world and the devil, but this one lives in us. Th- that's our reality, and it leads us into chapter 8, where Paul goes into detail about how to overcome this fact of our existence, our state, before we came to Christ. Uh, when he tells us how we overcome this as Christians. Chapter 8, <laughs> got to wait for another time. <laughs> and Lord willing, we're going to look at that next week. For now, though, there's a couple of other things to note in this chapter which kind of point us in the right direction. And the first one we're going to look at, we we need to jump all the way back to the first part of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 7, where Paul introduces us to the fact that the 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 law's authority over us ends at death. 
And then he gives an example, which we won't take the time to look at this morning. But in verse 1, we read, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives. So the authority of the law ends at death. And I think at first glance we might think, well, that's pretty obvious. I mean, we understand that those who are in heaven need no law, right? I mean, they're already perfected, while those who are in hell are in a place where no law can do them any good. But Paul has something else in mind here. He's not thinking in terms of uh, what we would call physical death. I mean, it's death, yes, but, but not the death of our body. Verse 4 tells us what Paul is really saying here. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit. For God. You see, the law's authority over us ends when we come to Christ. We, we now belong to him who died and who was raised from the dead. And the fruit we now yield is fruit for God. Verse 6 says pretty much the same thing and adds just a little bit of information. But now by dying to what once bound us, We've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, we're released from the law. When we came to Christ, we were released from that law. It's not that it's an unimportant thing. It just doesn't dominate our existence anymore. We serve now in a new way. And the new way is of the Spirit. And that's the subject of chapter 8. We don't serve now in the way of the law, in the written code. We died to that law through the body of Christ. We were released from that law, having died to what bound us. Galatians makes the same argument. When Paul writes in chapter 3, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Well, it's by belief. It's not by the written code. Now, I have just a little bit more to say about this, but the first that, that's the first arrow pointing us in the right direction. When Christ came, the law has no more authority over us. We now belong to Christ and Christ alone. The other thing we want to see is another arrow pointing us in the right direction. And for that, we have to turn um, to the end of the chapter. Uh, after admitting his wretched state, Paul asks, and then he answers a vital question beginning in the middle of verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it's not us. It's not what we do which rescues us. It's God. 
and what he has already done for us through Christ Jesus. You know, chapter 7 tells us uh, about a mountain that almost dominates our existence, and it's the law of God. And in the shadow of that mountain lurks an enemy which tries to deceive us and enslave us and kill us. And that enemy is sin. Well, that enemy is inside of us, not outside, inside. And that same enemy is strongest when we live in the shadow of the law. Christ brought us out of that shadow. He died for us. We died to the law so that we now belong to him. We serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We cannot live the Christian life by trying to keep the law. The sin that is in us is incited by that very thing. What we discover as we try to keep the law is we end up relying on our own strength and the sin in us defeats us. What God says to us, what he says to you and me is, if you really want to live the Christian life, then come and walk with me day by day and I will give you the strength you need when you need it, every time you need it. And the law and many other things will fade away as you taste my victory. Not by might. Not by power. But by my spirit, says the that is how we live the Christian life. And you know the table here really um, reflects that. The only way we can live that life, the only way we can walk with God in that intimacy and find that power and walk in the Spirit is because of what Christ did for us on that cross. You and I were without hope in this world until he took our sin away. But once we place our faith in him, we are not the same person. The new creation has come. He has changed us. He's begun a process. That is, he started when we put our faith in and he continues that work in our lives. Almost 40 years ago, I knelt in the back of the 7-Eleven and I asked Christ to come into my heart. I got up off of my knees and my life has not been the same. He has at work in me even today. And I need it. I need him. That's what this table says to us. Now, we, uh, we want you to participate with us in this Lord's Supper. 
whether you're a member of this church or not, if you know Christ as your Savior, then you can eat and drink with us. There's, there's kind of two reasons why we would ask you not to partake of the bread of the cup. Uh, the first one is, is if you aren't a believer. <laughs> if you're sitting there saying, what's he mean putting my faith in Christ? Uh, and that's probably pretty good evidence that you haven't come to him yet. It's not that we want to exclude you. It's just that this is a meal for those who really belong to Jesus. Nothing would make us happier than if you came to him. But if that's the case, we'd ask you to let the bread and the cup pass you by, and, and no one's going to say anything. No one will draw attention to it. No one's going to come tell me about it. It's an honorable decision. And then if you're here, and you really are a believer, but you have this uh, continuing animosity between you and another Christian that you haven't attempted to set right, then you too need to let the bread and cup pass you by. Otherwise, you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. It makes a mockery of what that meal stands for. And again, no one's going to tell me. No one will draw attention to it. And since we have kids in here today, let me add this to it. Moms and dads, grandmoms, granddads, aunts, uncles, whoever brought the kids today, you know your children. You know whether they need to participate in this or not. And so we're going to entrust to you the job of making sure that that bread and cup either passes them or stops with them. Our custom is to serve the bread and hold it till we eat together, and we eat together, and then we do the same with the cup. So I'm going to ask those gentlemen that are going to help me serve if you come forward right now. And while they're coming forward,